0: If you open up your bibles to jude i was telling steve as we we're getting started that there's three outlines left uh, three outlines left and then i get to be fed again every sunday and i'm very much looking forward to that uh, jude's been a tremendous blessing uh, but steve's quite the teacher and i need to be fed too i don't think i realized that quite so profoundly until our meeting and boy i enjoyed that meeting i tell you i um, you know, there's times where you get a meeting where there's just amazing fellowship, and uh, no one wants to say it, but the preaching's—it's truth. You know, it's there, but it didn't necessarily speak to where you were at in the moment. Uh, I don't know about you all, but the preaching was there, the fellowship was there. It was—it uh, was tremendous. Just what a blessing it was to me, for sure. Well, we're going to look at this. This particular outline the longest of the three that's left, and I've entitled it right out of the actual text itself spots in your feast of charity. So we're going to start there in verse 12, where we see that. We're going to read to verse 16. Jude, verse 12, these are spots in your feast of charity. Now, the these that it's referring to are the ungodlies that we just spoke of in the previous outline. So all the examples that he gives in those previous verses. So we want to just jump back a little bit to make reference to some of those and they're pretty easy to find. Verse eleven begins with woe, woe unto them, for they have gone in the way of Cain. Them and these are speaking to the same group. They've gone in the way of Cain and ran greedily after the heir of Balaam for reward and perished in gainsaying of Kor. We won't read all the rest of those verses, but understand that's uh, what that reference is to. So here we see these are these are spots in your feasts of charity. Uh, and if you're looking at the outline, you see that Strong's gives us the Greek word agapeus, which was the meal before the Lord's Supper. These are the feasts, uh, spots in your feasts of charity, speaking specifically to the meal before the Lord's Supper, which providentially just happens to line up today on a day where we're observing the Lord's Supper. And then he says, when they feast with you, feeding themselves without fear. This is how they're eating. Feeding themselves without fear, without reverence, clouds they are, without water, carried about of winds, trees whose fruit wither, without fruit, twice dead, plucked up by the roots. Raging waves of the sea, foaming out their own shame, wandering stars to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his, of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of, their, of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are murmurers, complainers, walking after their own lusts, and their mouth speaketh great swelling words, having men's persons in admiration Because of advantage. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we look here again at Jude's writing, Father, remind us of what's been taught before uh, and be with us, Lord, as an encouragement to keep reading. There is so much in this little book, as Steve and I have both said, so much for us to be encouraged by, to be warned by. And Father, I pray that we do very much take this book to heart. Help us, Father, to find questions of our own that we need to seek answers for, Lord, and to be about the business of settling the business uh, before us. Lord, we ask that you be with the Sunday school classes in the other room, be with the little ones, be with the lost in this room, the lost that might be watching, Father, that they might find hope in the messages delivered here today. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Jude here is speaking of those who, as we mentioned last time, were considered certain condemned creepers. We took this from verse 4. And we read it in verses 5-11 through 11, as we really broke down a list of times in which the Lord delivered his people. And yet there were, as we see in this text, mockers, murmurers, complainers in the midst. That still happens today. Murmurers and complainers, even coming out of the weekend meeting that we just had last week. No doubt we've come across or maybe we've been Those murmurers, those complainers, and those mockers. Because when we're that close to the Lord's goodness, that close to His will, that close to the truth that is setting us free, the flesh, that old man nature, latches on to it and restrains us from proceeding any further. This is a battle in which we're all raging against. This is a battle for each and every one of us. We mentioned before there were seven different biblical examples. It's always mine. I just want to point it out. It's always mine. There's three of them here. And it's always mine that decides to interject in the message. You're out of line, sir. These ungodlies were condemned from the beginning, never to know the voice of our Lord. They not only deny the Lord God in verse 4, as we've read multiple times now throughout the study, but they also strive to turn God's grace into lasciviousness. They take this beautiful thing that we know to be God's grace and attempt to turn it into something ugly with the stain of man on it. So let us better understand these characteristics of these ungodly spots and hopes of marking their potential existence in our own lives, in our own ministries, in our own walk, because they're a danger unto us. They eat without fear as they feed themselves. I'm just going to give you the points up front, but we won't get through all of them today. He describes them as wind, uh, being carried about by the wind. He describes them as a wave of a raging sea. As wandering stars, and then we'll close this outline when we get there with the fact that uh, we were warned by Enoch of the of their existence, which is a fascinating thing in and of itself. If you think back to how early in Genesis we saw Enoch, and yet he writes of the Lord and His saints coming back. He writes of what hasn't happened yet in our own time, in the own, in in the history of creation, it hasn't happened yet, and yet Enoch. Six, 7,000 years ago, was warning about that very event. We'll begin here by looking at the phrase, without fear they feed themselves. This, this word feeding, according to Strong's, it uh, means to tend as a shepherd of, to feed, to tend a flock, to keep sheep. And then the phrase, without fear. Uh, anybody my age is probably pretty familiar with the phrase, without fear, which was the uh, knockoff brand of no fear, which I'm pretty sure every person my age had at least one t-shirt of Uh, it was a little trendy back then Uh, scary how many trendy phrases we might find a society that the Lord literally warns against pride I mean that's that's something that is held in very high standard now with Juneteenth and whole months dedicated to what pride uh, what pride means to man essentially the rainbow which was God's covenant Uh, has also been uh, reassigned a different meaning, if you'll allow me to use the phrase. But here, the phrase, without fear, it speaks to without thought. Without thought of the gift they partake and consume. They approach this meal. They approach this feast. They approach uh, a place in which they should be reverencing God, maybe the most, without fear, without consideration. And they consume Jude describes them here as clouds without water, trees whose fruit withereth. Isaac, when he was little, uh, used to say, used to refer to trees as doing their job when they provided shade. Uh, he was two, three, four years old. And he used to say that tree's doing its job. Well, the tree's actual job is to bear fruit most times. Uh, it's not always an apple or a pear. Some trees don't provide edible fruit for us, but they provide of their own kind, as stated back in Genesis 1, as their creation. But here we, we essentially see a useless tree, a tree whose fruit withereth, a tree as described in the text as being twice dead and plucked up by the roots. Second Peter chapter two verse seventeen, and there's a lot of similarities as you've already seen through our study of Jude between Jude and Peter's writing. But in Second Peter two seventeen we read, These are wells without water, clouds that are carried with a tempest, to whom the mists of darkness is reserved forever. Do we give much notice to a cloud that does not rain? Have you ever looked up in the sky and complained about one of the white puffy clouds that isn't raining on you at the time? It's a tough thing to bring up in an outline in a state that's seen only rain for six or seven months. But understand, we don't typically even notice these clouds that have no rain. Without the refreshing rain for the body or for the garden, do we even have much use for those clouds? Milburn wrote, such clouds only deceive and discourage those thirsty for the water of life. They darken the sky of a true believer and dim his vision of the sun of righteousness. S-U-N. Proverbs twenty-five, fourteen: Whoso boasteth himself of a false gift is like clouds and wind without rain. Let me read that again. Whoso boasteth himself of a false gift is like clouds and wind without rain. In God's response to Job's torment, He calls for Job to remember His place. Uh, consider with me Job thirty-two, or rather Job thirty-eight, verses thirty-three through thirty-six. These are the words of the Lord unto Job, who at this point had gone through some very intense conversations with his friends, essentially saying there must be some sin in your life. There must be some reason that you have caused all this affliction upon yourself. And it says in verse 33 of Job 38, Knowest thou the ordinances of heaven? Canst thou set the dominion thereof in the earth? Canst thou lift up thy voice to the clouds? That abundance of water may cover thee canst thou send lightning's that they may go and say unto thee here we are who hath put wisdom in the inward parts or who hath given understanding to the heart They're very difficult questions that job wouldn't have had an answer for and we probably wouldn't either it gives us a, a reason to consider again proverbs 25:14 whoso boasteth himself of a false gift is like clouds and wind without rain talking about things they do, do not know they do not have control of And essentially, in Jude, more specifically, something they have no reverence for, no holy fear for, godly fear for, no respect unto. God makes clear to Job that all power and all glory is that of the sovereign creators to control, now and forever. Even understanding, even wisdom, as Solomon writes of, being one of the most precious things, God is in control of its flow. God is in control of its sending and of its receiving. Think of what we're seeing in in our afternoon study with the Lord's ministry. I see in one of the previous outlines he talks about, he's he's literally, it might be the one we're doing today to be honest with you, pretty far ahead in those outlines, but when the 70 return with where we're at right now in the study, he gives thanks unto God for what has been revealed as well as what has been concealed because God the Father controls both. He controls what we know, what we understand, and what we reject and hold our hearts uh, against, harden our hearts up against. These that Jude is describing are without such spiritual guidance. They serve little purpose beyond casting a shadow on the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is a phrase we ought to be very aware of. Casting a shadow of the gospel... Uh, uh, casting our own shadow shadow upon the gospel. What is our responsibility to the gospel would probably be a pretty decent message to preach concerning this truth. What we read in Acts is that they continually honored God. The church was added to daily, as it says in one place, but they continued to go in fear of the Lord, sharing the gospel. And when they talked about witnessing or sharing the gospel, they talked about what they had seen, what they had heard, and how they felt about it, how they responded to it, what happened next. That's our responsibility to the gospel. And when we handle the gospel that way, it magnifies the gospel. Anybody ever held a magnifying glass to an ant and seen what happens? Magnification brings more intense light to it. But if you're burning some ants, and this giant right here, Isaac, stands in front of the sun, and your magnifying glass, what happens? The ants have no idea you're even there. They don't know there's a magnifying glass above them. They don't even, as big as Isaac is, they don't even know there's a sun. They think it's night. They embrace and love darkness because they don't have any light to compare it to. What is our responsibility? Is it to magnify the gospel or shadow the gospel? When you give your testimony to someone, but you boast of even a little bit, that you have invited Jesus in, you have accepted Jesus, that your part in it is bigger than what the Bible says your part should be, you've now cast a shadow over the gospel. They now see what you have revealed unto them, but they don't see the whole thing. They don't see your total depravity. They don't see the size of of your part in this thing. That's why we must be very, very careful about casting a shadow on the truth of the gospel. He uses the phrase that there are trees whose fruit withereth. And in Genesis 1, 11, God gave commandment for trees to yield fruit of its kind. They were given a purpose of being fruitful, as we talked about in our Genesis study. And we do not see where he ever overturned that. The only thing that would ever change what a tree was meant to do is if God, its creator, had for it to do something else. God is immutable, and he set this thing in motion, and it has remained in motion. That is the purpose of a tree. We see here described a tree whose fruits wither. Consider what Jesus wrote in Luke 6, verses 43 and 44. For a good tree, a good tree bringeth not forth corrupt fruit, neither doth a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. For every tree is known by his fruit. For of thorns men do not gather figs, nor of a bramble bush gather they grapes. That hasn't changed that has not changed. It didn't change from creation to when the Lord said it, and it hasn't changed since the Lord said it to now. And therefore, we can understand, doing some quick gospel math, that from the beginning of creation to this moment now, it has not changed. The Lord says there in Luke 6, an observation of the truth of nature as God the Father had ordained it to be. Thus, this is not a good tree being described here by Jude. It is bringing forth a corrupt tree Dead fruit, bearing for us what manner of heart that lies within. Look at the very next verse there in Luke 6. Jesus continuing to speak, he says, A good man out of the good treasure of his heart bringeth forth that which is good. And an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart bringeth forth that which is evil. For of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaketh. The very next phrase Jude uses is, Without fruit, twice dead plucked up by the roots. Uh, I like what Milburn says here, but I struggle with the word autumnal, so hopefully I don't mess it up when I put it all together. But he says, autumnal trees with a barren profession. I like that. I like that a lot. And, and, And if anyone is interested, his survey of Jude is on our website. It has been a tremendous blessing because I've taught through Jude before, but some of the things that I've been able to bring out that I hadn't really considered before have come from his his survey. So if you go to our website, you can see that there. I think it's in other resources. I'd have to take a look. If if you're interested, let me know and I'll point you in that way. But autumnal trees, trees whose leaves are already dying at the end of their season, autumnal trees with a barren profession. They have nothing to show for it. What then shall be done with a tree that is dead inside? These trees are said to be twice dead. They're useless and fruitless. Jesus said in Luke 13, verses 6 through 9, He spake also this parable. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came and sought fruit thereon and found none. Then said he unto the dresser of his vineyard, Behold, these three years I come speaking, seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. Cut it down. Why cumbereth it the ground? And he answering said unto him, Lord, let it alone this year also, till I shall dig about it and dung it, and if it bear fruit well, and if it bear fruit well, he's saying there that's a good thing, and if not, then after that thou shalt cut it down. This is speaking in part to judgment. What an interesting thing to find a tree in a fertile garden in fertile soil that's not bearing fruit. There's a lot that we can extrapolate here. But the idea of life itself is not guaranteed by fertile soil. Life itself comes from Christ Jesus. Period. Life itself is granted by God the Father, either the way it was set forth in motion from creation, or the way that we have been redeemed and received new life at crucifixion. What is described here is the reprobate, he that is beyond the possibility of coming into spiritual life. I and mean, we'll deal more with the reprobate as we get to the end of Jude. But I want to make sure we hear that, that term used here. A space of repentance has been given to, to the beloved. Let not this warning go unheeded. For Jesus was speaking to all of us when he said, I tell you, nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Luke 13, verse 3 In verse 5, the same chapter where we read about this parable. And we'll get to that in our afternoon studies here very soon. Jude also says that wind carries these, uh, these in quotes, this pronoun that he's using here. Wind carries them about. Of these clouds, Jude says, they are carried and steered or guided about of winds. Winds, uh, according to Strong's, is a violent agitation, and stream of air. To be led by such a thing is dangerous. Where will you land? Where will you go? When will it end? How fast will you go? How slow will you go? Jesus describes the wind in John 3, 8 as blowing where it listeth, or where it will. And thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh, and whither it goeth. We cannot tell the source. We cannot tell the end destination is a a specific picture he's painting for Nicodemus in John 3, which we've spent a lot of time on. But listen to how he describes the wind. It cannot be tracked. Uh, You you can't throw one of those GPS geo-verify trackers up in the air and track where that wind's going to go. The wind may drop it and continue to travel. The wind itself is invisible. It can be felt, it can be experienced, but it cannot be seen. Jesus is referencing, as I mentioned, something different. The Holy Spirit is being born again. He's in relation to election, in relation to salvation. He is saying it also can't be tracked. To the church, he's saying, therefore, witness unto all nations. And teach what I have taught. And be as I have been. And observe what I have observed. And point all things to me. Because you don't know where the wind will blow. From our perspective, salvation is as the wind in that it goes where it wants to go. From God's perspective, salvation goes exactly where it has been intended to be. It doesn't uh, land accidentally in the wrong area or for the wrong heart. This is not the wind that Jude is referencing here, but in type, in, in, in its untrackable, untraceable existence, that is the same wind. Is a wind of chaos, a wind without order. This wind here for the ungodly is sowing confusion and only seeking as the robbers and thieves, only to steal and to kill and destroy, as we read recently in John 10.10. It is an imposter wind, which is what makes it so dangerous for the undiscerning believer. It is a consistent wind. It is a wind that does not back down. Think of some of the examples we've given, such as Balaam and Korah. We might even say they should have known better the things they would have experienced walking on dry land. Come on, Korah. How did you miss the message? Because our understanding is that the wind hits everyone equally. This wind brings about this, this change. This wind has the same impact or effect on all. But that's not necessarily the case. Think back now, beloved, to a time when you did not know Jesus as your own Lord and Savior. Were you not also carried about with every wind of doctrine? Were you not also likely to blow in and out of trouble and despair and heartache at will? Did you not sin as much as you wanted to? Praise the Lord for our salvation, for a purpose as well as freedom from the bondage to sin. Jude also says a wave of raging sea. There's a lot of descriptives that Jude gives us. Again, a reminder, this is a very short book. It's one chapter, 25 verses. But he gives us every descriptive that you would imagine he could think of to paint the picture of the dangers that are out there with one intention. Verse 3, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. The earnest contention is what frames up this entire letter. He paints a picture of disaster and woe when he talks of these examples. And here when he's describing their characteristics, it is with one intention in mind. That we earnestly contend for the faith. So every time we ask, well, why should we earnestly contend for the faith? This book gives us the answer. Because you'd think Korah could have. You'd think Cain should have. You'd think Balaam would have known enough. And yet, woe unto them! Think of the descriptions we have here of a, of a twice-dead tree, of raging seas, of, of uh, a carrying wind, and as we continue to go, wandering stars, uh, uh, wind, and all these things that we've looked at. And then the warning from Enoch. All of this is laid out very meticulously because we're not merely to content. We're not merely to, oh, by the way, mention faith. Oh, by the way, defend what we believe. We are meant to do it earnestly. I don't know that Jude, I don't know Jude personally, obviously, but I don't know that Jude would have even bothered to write this letter if we were merely just to contend for the faith. But because of the earnest contention which we were to have and are to have, he gave all diligence to write this letter under the churches, under the believers. In a time in which it wasn't as simple as just dropping 30 copies of it into the mail, or throwing it up on Facebook, on the Jerusalem church page. It was a dangerous thing that he was doing here, as we said in the uh, in the beginning of this study. It was a dangerous thing for him to write such a thing and to put it out there. Think of the names that he's using. Think how uncomfortable you get when the preacher touches on a, on a name from the pulpit. Jude's not hesitating to lay out here very specific, ungodly dangers to the believers. Why? Why would he take such risks? Why would he be so firm? Why would he be so direct? Because we are to earnestly contend for the faith. He describes here waves of a raging sea. Again, Strong's just giving us a... a, Uh, deeper context of the words that he's using here, because he's using great words in this description. The word raging, according to Strong's, is described also as being wild, living or growing in the fields or woods of animals, wild, savage of countries, wild, uncultivated, unreclaimed. In the context of this particular book, of men and animals in a moral sense, wild, savage, fierce, boorish, rude, of any violent passion, vehement, and furious. This is very important because as we get towards the last few verses, we're going to see that he speaks of the ungodly as having a more animalistic nature. And we'll get there. It's in the last outline. But it's uh, animalistic in the sense that they are fending for themselves. Self-sufficient, self-image, all of those words that have self with a hyphen after it are very dangerous for the believer. And that is the the way in which they carry themselves, the way in which they're motivated, their earnest contention is me, 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 me. Think of what Isaiah says of Satan. I will, I will, I will. His motivation was animalistic. I will ascend. I will meet. I will match. I will defeat. All of these things that Satan laid out that I will do in contention to God. Let me throw this out there. Do you believe that Satan merely contends... Against God, or does he earnestly contend? Is he seeking to break your will and burn your testimony, or is he earnestly seeking to break your will and your testimony? After thousands of years, he knows he can't take your salvation, but he might convince you that he can. After thousands of years, he knows that once saved is always saved. But he also knows that if he can make you good and ashamed, good and ashamed of the Lord Jesus Christ, of yourself, then you'll cast your shadow firmly over the gospel and you'll never tell anyone. He is earnestly seeking to devour. Roaring about because he can confidently roar about at times. But firing fiery darts constantly. So that's raging. Let's look at the word waves. This... Word here, specifically in context to what we're looking at, is speaking of an impulse of a restless man tossed to and fro by raging passions. So waves are directly impacted by the raging, that animalistic rage that we just talked about, that rude or violent passion, vehement, furiousness, and they're thrown all about, thrown all about by this rage. In summary of this point, we find that Jude is describing these ungodlies to be impulsive, restless men, foaming out their own shame, their own dead fruit, in a wild and savage manner, lacking all moral sense. And then we see wandering stars, and this is the point that we're going to rest on, and we'll we'll pick back up with Enoch uh, in a couple of weeks. But wandering stars, again, Strong's Uh, Just to give us an idea of what he's meaning by these words. it is talking about the word wandering as an erratic teacher. A rover. Um, This is actually the word that we get planets from. As they rove about, as they wander through the skies or through space. This is the same word. um, Planetes uh, is the original. It is this word that gives us... Uh, an idea, especially as you think of planets, as what these would be like. These wandering stars. They're not gravitationally held or bound to anything. Uh, We think of the Geneva Convention, and we think of rules in terms of engagement. These have none. These will do what is necessary to earnestly contend against you. To earnestly contend against this word to earnestly contend against the, the foundation, Christ Jesus, of his church. The comparison is more of a planetary body like a meteor that will soon burn out rather than a large planet with a self-sustaining core of some sort. Uh, can meteors be steered? Can they be controlled? Uh, despite Ben Affleck and Bruce Willis's best attempts, uh, I don't think you can actually do that. I don't think that you can act, go plead with a meteor, Please don't hit the earth. Please don't hit my home. I don't think you stand my... If if we could do that with a tornado, I would say, then we might have a chance with a meteor. But a meteor comes from a place you cannot see. It really can't be tracked by a common man. And how much of it will be left as it nails into the atmosphere? can't really be gauged all that well. It comes down to the angle it hits, the speed it hits, the size of it as it comes in. There's a lot of variables that Are are seemingly left to chance. Jude makes a comparison here of these ungodlies to be like planets and that they are reserved, faded, or kept in the blackest of darkness. This blackness that's referred to here is the word Zophos and it's often used to describe the gloom of the netherworld. These are very important words that Jude uses for us. He's not just simply saying darkness, he's not just simply saying rovers. He's using very specific words that have meaning to us even in 2023. Planets as we know them orbit the sun. They're gravitationally held to our universe or to our specific galaxy. Every planet found in space orbits something. Some are closer to what they orbit than others. Is this not how it was for the 12 disciples when we talked about the inner circle? And the next layer of the circle, they, they all had fellowship, but some had a more intense fellowship, a more precious fellowship, maybe even a sweeter fellowship. Consider the inner circle. Simon, Peter, John, and James. Next layer of the orbit, Andrew, Matthew, Thomas, and Philip. Sometimes Andrew is considered to be in that inner circle. I, I keep him in that next layer because of things that Peter and John and James were allowed to witness that he wasn't. The third layer, Simon of Zelotes, James the Lesser, Thaddeus, or the other Judas and Nathaniel or Bartholomew. Not a planet, for he had an unusual orbit, I guess like Pluto, but I'm I was raised as Pluto as a planet, so I'm not going to make that full comparison. But Judas Iscariot. He had an unusual orbit. He certainly circled the Lord Jesus, but was he indeed with the Lord Jesus? He followed Jesus, but he was the son of perdition. His orbit is around his true master, the prince of this world. It's an interesting thing to consider how Jude lays all these things out, and I pray that uh, that you find that to be a blessing. Again, Jude speaks of these things with a heart for the believer. We mentioned this in the beginning as he, he talks about the beloved quite often throughout his book. But again, what he writes of, Enoch also wrote and warned of from the very beginning. So far in the beginning that it was before the examples that Jude references. It's a fascinating thing what the Lord uh, has revealed to His people. And I pray that He's revealed to us again today.